Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was told uh, this morning after the event, um, and of course my reaction, as you'd imagine, uh, much like anybody involved in, in the SNP, is that this is a difficult day uh, for the party. But again, I just reiterate and emphasise it's so important for me not to comment on a live police investigation and see, be seen to prejudice that in any way, shape or form. Is this the real reason why Nicola Sturgeon resigned? No, I believe Nicola Sturgeon absolutely uh, that uh, you know she had taken the party as uh, further forward as, as, as she possibly uh, could. I think anybody who has particularly seen Nicola through the COVID pandemic uh, could really sympathise with just how exhausted uh, she absolutely was. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. Thanks so much for being with us. If you have found us as a result of last week's interview with Kate Forbes, welcome. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for your comments as well on that and for sharing the podcast as well. Um, it was definitely an insightful listen. We're very grateful to Kate for taking the time to, to spend with us, to answer some of those questions and to get stuck into what happens next for her as well. So thank you. Uh, you can keep your comments coming. If you've not heard that yet, just scroll back down in your feed. It is literally the previous episode to this one. It is well worth a listen. Uh, joining us, as ever, on Hollywood Sources, we've got Jeff Aberdeen, who was Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond as First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Uh, good morning. Hello, and hello. it's a Geidrich day, as they say in the northeast, <laughs> up in Aberdeen. Is it, any, is it ever anything but? Uh, yes. Oh, right, it's, sorry. Uh, uh, Percentage-wise, more sunshine than lots of other parts of the Scotland, uh, Callum, I'll have <laughs> right, you know. Okay, good, you had that <laughs> one ready to go. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've, also got, uh, we've also got Andy McKeever with us, who is Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning from uh, today, with a slightly dodgy 4G connection from the island of Great Bernera, just off the west coast of Lewis. i tell you something... There's no urban wine bar revolutionaries here, let me tell you. <laughs> Not a single one of them in sight. Apart from you. It's just, apart from me, it's just me and the mackerel. And if you go on to the Hollywood Sources Twitter feed and you see some of the video clips, you will see me and the mackerel right out the window behind me. It's very, very idyllic. You well, win. you won't see the... Matt, you won't see the micro, but you will see me. <laughs> you, you win backdrop of the day, I think. Uh, we do also, for our episode today, have special guest Gene Freeman joining us uh, for the episode. Hello, Gene. Hi there. It's good to be with you. Thank you. And welcome mm. to the circus. Goodness me. Uh, we'll try and keep Jeff and Andy on track for the next hour or so. Uh, Jean, of course, served as Cabinet Secretary for Health and Sport from 2018 to 2021. Uh, she was the MSP for the Carrick, Cumnock and Doon Valley constituency from 2016 to 2021. And we're very glad to have you with us today, Jean. Thank you. Uh, we will get to Jean. We'll get back to Jeff and Andy as well. But first to the news, because Nicola Sturgeon's husband, Peter Murrell, has been arrested in connection with an investigation into Scottish National Party finances. He was taken into custody on Wednesday morning. We are recording this on Wednesday the 5th of April at just after 11am. Police Scotland have also been seen at the SNP headquarters in Edinburgh. Of course, Mr Murrell resigned as the SNP chief executive last month. 
He'd been the boss of the kind of day-to-day running of the party since 1999. The investigation was launched after complaints about the SNP's handling of £600,000 in donations raised by the party, ostensibly to campaign for and hold a second independence referendum. It is alleged that the money instead was used to help with the party's day-to-day running costs. A loan of just over £107,000, which was interest-free, and a personal loan from Mr Murrell that he made to the party in 2021, is also said to be included in this investigation. So, remember, first of all, a few things by way of context to these most recent developments. Questions that Nicola Sturgeon faced at various press conferences, which as it turned out, were leading up to her resignation. Do you remember those about party finances? She was regularly asked about them, and she often appeared a little bit irritated by those questions and and never really answered them. Also, by way of context, this is now an active police investigation. So it is not something that we are going to discuss, that we are going to converse about because of laws around contempt of court. From here, then, uh, there are political implications to consider. How will the brand new First Minister handle all of this, within, of course, the constraints of the law? How do the opposition parties handle it? And as well as that, does this add further depth to the reasons for Nicola Sturgeon's quite abrupt resignation? If this had happened before the leadership contest, to what extent would it have shaped the contest? And answers to these questions, I suppose, will, will be clarified in the days and the weeks ahead and we'll reflect what we can, when we can, on the Holyrood Sources podcast. I should just read you this from an SNP spokesperson as well. Clearly, it would not be appropriate to comment on any live police investigation, but the SNP have been cooperating fully with this investigation and will continue to do so. At its meeting on Saturday, the governing body of the SNP, the NEC, agreed to a review of governance and transparency that will be taken forward in the coming weeks. And that pretty much does it by way of how we can cover this today. I think the political implications, Jeff, and we will speak broadly here, they are probably the most fascinating bit, aren't they? It's about the handling of this, and as I say, within the constraints of those contempt of court laws for the new First Minister and for others as well. Yes, indeed. And uh, we have to be very careful for all the reasons that you've outlined. Um, But, you know, I think the the biggest uh, reflection in this news really is just breaking as we speak, is, you know, if Hamza had a difficult task ahead of him as first minister and party leader, then it's just got a whole lot harder. And I think that would have been the case, incidentally, if Kate Forbes was appointed as well. Clearly, they need to establish or re-establish trust uh, within the party itself and with the wider public public in wake of this. And so I'm sure that Hamza will be considering carefully his words, uh, reflecting that it is a uh, ongoing police investigation, but really hammering that that statement, really, that you outlined from the SNP spokesperson that uh, there will be a review of governance procedures within the party. And clearly that needs to be done and it needs to be done pretty quickly to restore and establish trust, uh, as I say, with the party members and indeed the public at large. Andy, that's always been a theme, I suppose, hasn't it, of this new chapter for the SNP under a new First Minister is about bringing the party together. And actually, the First Minister, in any number of contexts now, has really got his work cut out in order to try and get people sort of back in line, as it were. Yeah, I mean, you know, irrespective of today's news, we are in a different chapter of politics now. We're in a chapter where, for the first time in really 10-odd years, there is a political check on the SNP and the Scottish Government's power. There's an external political check from a resurgent Labour Party. And there's now also an internal political check as well, because you've had this leadership contest and there are kind of two identifiable visions that have come from it. But I mean, I think, you know, irrespective of of the specifics of today's news, Mm. I think in general, what we know is that SNP support has been falling over the last few months and Labour support has been rising over the last few months. And if nothing else... News like today's news does not help that trend where the SNP is concerned. Yeah. Uh, And that is where we will leave it for today. Of course, we'll keep an eye on developments um, on the podcast and indeed the implications of them, the political ins and outs. Right, let's get to some of what we can talk about today. And we want to start with a couple of your emails, actually, in response to um, the last episode on the podcast. Thanks for all your comments, which I have to say agree or disagree with Kate Forbes your comments have been really constructive and thoughtful and we appreciate that that is what we are here to do none of this is ever meant to be difficult destructive or or, or inflamed argument and division that's not what we want to do at all so thank you thank you for towing the party line on that one frankly Uh, this one from Marion first of all 
Uh, sends a long note. Uh, Hi, Team Hollywood. Uh, good going getting Kate Forbes and Naomi indeed to sit down with you. Kudos to you for setting a warm, light touch atmosphere and the kitchen table chat, which enabled her to reveal a good deal more of herself and her thinking. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, a surefire way to get your message read out is to compliment us. Um, ideally, right at the start. Uh, so well, well done, Marion. Uh, what I'd like to put out there, however, relates to the the preamble and to our new first minister's first first minister's questions. Uh, apologies for that sentence structure. Andy said he thought the three party leaders had a relatively good outing in spite of the protesters in the public gallery. I don't want to come over as partisan, but I have to agree with Mike Russell's view, described in The National, of the presiding officer and rules applied in the chamber, particularly in regard to the questioning and tenor of Douglas Ross's first minister question contributions that day. Uh, first of all, Andy, would you want to just tackle that uh, in terms of how Douglas Ross conducted himself? Look, Marion does have a point. Um, Douglas Ross is a, is a pretty normal guy. Okay, he's a, he's a normal guy with a normal life and normal hobbies. The only thing that's not normal is his job. Um, and the reality, I'm afraid, is that Douglas leads a party which uh, has made a bit of a living over the last few years out of a kind of angry, uh, devo-sceptic anti-nationalism. It works very well in the sort of dark corners of unionist Twitter, uh, and it works very well with the Tory core vote, um, which, you know, is, is a very unionist vote. Um, the 15 or 20 odd percent of, of people who can reliably be expected to vote Tory really like it when Douglas gets angry at First Minister's questions and criticises the First Minister, whoever that First Minister may be. What it doesn't work for is it doesn't work for people who aren't voting Tory at the moment and who could potentially be brought on board by a sort of pro-Scottish centre-right type agenda, but feel like uh, they are not being given the opportunity to do that by the Tory party. So yes, Marion has a point, um, but uh, it is not an accident. It is a strategic decision by the Tory party to adopt that approach. Marion went on to kind of highlight the fact that Holyrood was designed to be, well, frankly, less intense than Westminster when it comes to uh, debates and First Minister's questions and that sort of thing. So she talks about sort of cleaning up First Minister's questions to try to avoid mm -hmm. deteriorating standards in the behaviour of those involved. So an interesting, really interesting thought. Uh, right, this other email, Jeff, I'm going to put to you. Uh, there's a couple of questions from this person who doesn't use their name, but says, what message does the sidelining of the 48% send to people the SNP wants to convert from no to yes. Hamza talks of being inclusive, but if he isn't inclusive of differing views in his party, how can the electorate believe the SNP will be inclusive of their views now or with independence? And there's a second question in a second from this person, but let's go for that first. Yeah, I mean, I said last week, I, I felt it was really important when, when such a uh, a narrow contest has just taken place that it is really incumbent on try to present a, a unified front as much as possible. And it would have been wise to ensure that that 48% was reflected in government, uh, whether that was with Kate Forbes herself or indeed uh, somebody like uh, Jim Fairley or uh, Ivan McKee in government. I think that would stand you in good stead in terms of your electoral platform, not least, as we know, because Kate Forbes was pulling better than Hamza in terms of favourability with the general public as well. But it's also the case, and I thought Kate touched on this last week really well, that mm. Hamza's his own man. He's got to uh, play the politics and play the governance as he sees it. And so he's gone with his team. But I do think as he moves forward, what's been interesting in the last few days, have we seen a bit of an accommodation, an open door for Kate Forbes to come into uh, the government sphere again. And I think that is telling. That tells us that he is willing to accommodate more of that 48%. And it'll be interesting to see if that is done in the, the weeks and months to follow. Mm. Uh, and let's go on then to this person's other sort of consideration. Why does a belief that the economy needs to be grown to finance all we want to achieve, why does it need to be considered centre-right or even Tory? Uh, this person goes on to highlight uh, areas, rural areas such as the south of Scotland, where small businesses have a huge effect, providing jobs, raising skill levels, etc, um, etc. Et why should helping such SMEs be seen as centre-right rather than simply as a necessity? Yeah, look, I mean, again, we touched on this last week, and, and this is very aligned to my 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 views. I, I, look, you know, I'll give you a very uh, a microcosm um, of an example by way of answering this question. You know, I'm in the northeast of Scotland just now, 
Um, there's a thousand energy supply chain companies. The vast majority of them are small and medium enterprises, the very lifeblood of our economy. They aren't all the big oil. They aren't all these big companies. They are the ones that are the supply chain companies that we must incentivize to try and get to renewable energies, uh, to, to green hydrogen, to offshore wind, and to support them as they do so. So I do think it's important that we try and separate what is known as big business in that vital SME chain. And I certainly don't think it's uh, centre-right or right-wing at all to, to, to list it or to explain it like that. And worth remembering, as I said again last week, that the SNP's success um, was built in 2007 and 2011 on a platform of incentivizing sustainable economic growth with a big target on those SMEs. That was the platform that, that, that the SNP owes a lot of its success it enjoys today to, and that shouldn't be forgotten. Gene, you're getting a bit of an idea of how this uh, how this podcast unfolds. Um, I, I noticed you kind of um, nodding your head along with that question on on the kind of framing of of economic yeah. plans. Do you want to just add add your comments? Yeah. So uh, so I think the the notion that economic growth is in and of itself a right wing notion is utterly simplistic and does us real harm, actually. Um, it's, it's kind of student politics stuff, if I'm honest, you know. Uh, we've all got to be inside. It's self-evident to me, if you don't have economic growth, you are not going to have the national resources you need in order to fund the kind of public services that you want and the support that really gives people equality of opportunity and life. So, uh, and, and back to... So the constituency that I represented in southwest Scotland was full of small and medium-sized enterprises. Full disclosure, my two nieces run one that was set up by their dad. Mm. Highly successful, constantly flexible to meet changing uh, market demands to deal with COVID. And I know that they and those that they work alongside want to feel a valued part of the country. Now, if we say, actually, we don't care about you because economic growth is not such a big deal, what are we actually saying to large numbers of people who are actually genuinely the engine? And I also think, although I'm no economic expert at all, I also think a thriving small and medium-sized enterprise sector is attractive to the larger investors because they look at that and they say, there is an economy that is vibrant, thriving, and we want to be part of that because there's something in it for us. Mm. It's all about how do you then distribute the wealth that is generated? That's the key question, not whether or not you generate wealth. Uh, yeah, Gina, I uh, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think we're in danger again of agreeing with each other. So we'll try and find some areas of divergence on today's podcast. But but let me just pay a little bit of tribute to to Hamza Youssef. Um, he visited Aberdeen yesterday alongside uh, Net Zero Cabinet Secretary Mary McCallum, and actually his words were very aligned to what you've just said, Gene, which was really encouraging. So you know we've had the the the, the shall we say the. The, the fire and brimstone of the leadership contest. Uh, we said on a previous podcast, it's now incumbent on Hamza to get out there, introduce himself to the country, establish his platform. And from what he said to a lot of these energy businesses yesterday was, look, we accept we need to incentivize your growth. We need to take a pragmatic approach. And I, and I think it was really, really uh, well received. So hopefully that's a, a sign of things to come. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting. Well, Gene, it's great to have you with us. We've got lots that we want to talk to you about, and it's so good to have you as part of our conversation. Uh, do get in touch uh, with the podcast if you want your questions answered, if you want to add your comments. We'll read them out on the next episode after you've sent them. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. The inbox is always open, so even if you're listening to this days after we've recorded it, you can still react. The address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. All right, we're in the company of Gene Freeman on this episode. Uh, it's lovely to have you with us, Gene. Uh, right, Let's consider how you got into politics in the first place. What's the, what was the because you're not in politics now? What was the attraction? Um, so I've I've actually probably always been involved in politics. Probably from from uh, as a kid asking my dad about his life. He was born and raised in Sindeford in Gloucestershire. He was in the Second World War. He talked to me about how, as a young man coming back from that war. He wanted to have a different country to be part of. So he was a big trade unionist, big Labour Party supporter. So 
politics has always been part of my life. The standing to be an MSP um, in 2016 was a part, part, it was actually like quite a lot of things I've done. It was a, um, I think I'd like to do that for the area that I come from. I wonder if I can get elected. I wonder if I can. Let's see if I can. Mm. Um, so that's why I stood. I wanted to be the MSP for the part of the country that I grew up on. I didn't just want to be an MSP. Um, and it was fantastic. It was a fantastic five years. Um, being Social Security Secretary was was a brilliant job to be given something that hadn't that didn't exist and be told, right, you, away you go and start that and get the legislation right and get the tone and all of that right was a brilliant opportunity. And then, uh, as you say, I was the health secretary. Yeah. Which was great too. I, should, I, I was just about just to say. End that. It's just, you know, Social Security was fabulous and then I was the health secretary. Being the health secretary is one of the best jobs in government, there's no question. Uh, Jean, you, you, you took over as health secretary and obviously... Um, had to contend with the onset of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, I really want to, to hear, I'm sure we all do, your, your observations of what the role was like both before and after the, the, the onset of the pandemic in terms of how it changed your, your work focus, your priorities, the pressures involved, but also hoping that you can touch on something for me because I do feel um, that someone of your talents is a loss to Parliament, and had there not been that pandemic, would that have influenced your decision to step down at all as well? Hmm. So, so on the last part, part of that, Jeff, and thank you, that's very kind of you. On the last part, I genuinely don't know. I, I don't know. What I do know is that in the run up to twenty one, I knew that I that I didn't feel that I could give the job the hundred and ten percent I'd been giving it. No. Yeah. Is that because during COVID you're working seven days a week, exceptionally long hours, all of that? Or or is it just it would have been the case anyway? I, I really don't know that. What what I know is so this so at the start of being health secretary, um, I saw my job very much as fixing a number of things that needed fixed. The the, the whole situation on mesh for the women who'd been harmed and, and damaged by that procedure. Um, making sure that we uh, we stopped the procedure um, and the use of mesh, but also then helping the women who had campaigned so hard for that, but themselves had uh, been hurt physically and emotionally and financially. So kind of fixing those things, sorting out St John's Hospital that was not giving the level, not be, not because of staff, but... It, it wasn't giving the level of care to kids and their families, um, making sure that we really powered ahead with those elective centres that would let us cut the waiting times for um, hips and knees and cataracts, all of that. Um, but actually, I also had another priority that I, I couldn't meet because of COVID. I had begun um, uh, informal or in the in the sense that they weren't PR'd at all. But I had begun discussions with the Royal Colleges, um, Royal College of Surgeons, Royal College of Physicians, um, Emergency Medicine, all of those folks, BMA, around the future of our health service. And uh, what about targets? And uh, how do we make the best use of resource whilst holding true to the founding principles. Mm. And those were the beginnings of really good discussions, actually. My own view was that I needed those folk to be actively engaged in this. Um, it wasn't for me to, as a non-clinician, to start dictating to them. Um, but I also needed them to understand that they might not like the targets that exist, and I can see why, and I could see the unintended consequences of those but at the same time, we had to be able to demonstrate to the wider public the effectiveness of how we were using their resources mm. in the health service. And COVID put an end to that. And that's that's the thing I regret, because I think right now there there is if there was a need then to begin that conversation. And I thought I was I was 
going to be a wee bit ahead of the game, there is absolutely a desperate need to do it now. Jean, I mean, I, I find that whole uh, piece you talked about, about the um, reform of the NHS and the conversations you were having before COVID is really fascinating. Because for my money, there's only one politician at the moment in the UK who's saying anything remotely out of the box about the NHS, and that's West Streeting down at Westminster. And, I, you know, I, I do feel that um, the people who are running the NHS all over the UK in this post-COVID world are not really telling us the full story about what's going on. I mean, I, as you know, Jean, have some personal interest in this because my wife's a doctor, but I think the NHS has not so much, uh, is not so much crumbling, but has already crumbled. And I, I think we have a basic issue here in that if you look at the OECD figures, we put a relatively average amount of money into the NHS um, but we get poorer outcomes uh, in key killer diseases. We have far fewer doctors, far fewer nurses, far fewer beds, um, far far less kit than all of these other countries that put in a, a similar per head amount of money. And I don't think anybody really is asking asking themselves why. Why is that? What is it about the structure of our system which is not allowing us to get outcomes? Now, I mean, all countries across Europe have some difficulties with healthcare post-COVID. There's no question about that. But nobody's got the sort of difficulties we have with it. Mm. And, you know, I think there must be a case on a cross-party basis for going back to basics and saying, look, the only thing that we will not consider here is anything else other than that the NHS will be taxpayer-funded at the point of need. If we start from that as the basic, that you will get taxpayer-funded care at the point of need, is it not time for somebody to stand up and say, look, we need a blank sheet of paper here. This is not working. It's not going to work. So we have to start again and work out how best to structure this health service. Because at the moment, there is more and more and more need for it. Um, and there's less and less and less room to just keep throwing money at the same old system. So, Andy, I, I agree with certainly with the last bit that you said. I think that the way, the way forward on this is not simply to keep throwing money at it. Uh, Personally, I wouldn't actually start with politicians. I would start with the royal colleges, with the clinical teams, with the janitors. You know, I've got a story about uh, one hospital that I know that was very proud of, um, and, and I'm going to tell you a story because I think it's an indicator. It was very proud of what it called its door-to-balloon time. So that's basically how quickly does it treat someone who is having a heart attack? And door-to-balloon time is critical if you want to avoid damage to the heart muscle, right? So if you're fast, it will, it had the best, I think it still does, the best in the UK. It wanted to keep that. And the way it looked at how it, it could cut it even further was that it involved everyone who came into contact with that patient from the point that they came out the ambulance to the point when they were in the theatre. So that included the hospital receptionists, the janitors, as well as the clinical teams. And they cut their door to balloon time because of an idea that the janitor had, which was about a moving a drinks machine out the way so you got quicker into the lift. Wow. Right? Now, my point about that is ask everyone involved. Mm. That, was a, that was the Janny. Yeah. Good on him he will have helped save more lives. So, and we saw it during COVID. We saw during COVID when we stripped away in health boards all the layers of committees and decision-making because we had no choice. And we said to the frontline clinical teams, you make the decisions that are right to make for yourselves and your patients to keep you all safe. Take this the right way. Nothing bad happened mm. because you didn't have to write a policy paper and go to 22 different committees to get a decision. Yeah. So I would start with those folk and I'd start with the wider public because I think to a point you're right, people know that our health service needs change and they want to have a say in what that change is. So I'd start with all of them. I, I wouldn't start. I think in our current political world, the, the, the division and the toxicity is too great for people to have 
a rational, fair discussion about how do we make this better mm. and get the best use of resource and then see if we need more money in a way that is logical and reasonable and not point scoring. So I wouldn't start with politicians. Um, I would start with those other folks who are actually doing the job every single day or using the service uh, because they need to, and they all have their own uh, ideas. And I'll bet you, with some exception, mostly what they won't talk to us about is more money. They'll talk to us about different things. They'll talk to yeah. us, for example, about hospital at home should be across the whole country, yeah. not just dependent on whether a health board takes it up their hump to use it. <laughs> it should be there. Mm. Other digital, using AI and digital technology to help people with long-term conditions so they're in control, better control of their own condition, should be across the country. We've got all of this in our grasp, mm. but we're not maxing out the use of it. Can, can I just intervene very quickly, Callum? I know you want to come in. Jean, I'm finding this utterly fascinating um, and the approach you're outlining. So let, let, let me put this to you. If we're a few weeks down the line, a few months down the line, and First Minister Yusuf turns around and says, look, we need to think outside the box here and bringing together a, you know, whether it's a task force or um, a, a, a suite of advisors to really try and drive this fundamental change through... Would you be up for the cup in that respect? Oh, absolutely. Ab oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course I would. I care passionately about the NHS. I've got a long family history of it, not least myself many, many years ago working in it. Um, I care passionately about it, and I am convinced, utterly convinced, that we can make this better without more shed loads of money. Mm. We can do this better. Yeah. And it has to be. It has to be. Sorry, Callum, please. No, no, it's all really good. It's really fascinating. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's interesting, Gene, as well, because um, when you said a moment ago, you know, talking about going out to those colleges and hearing from them and starting to gather that information and COVID yeah. slammed the brakes on that, that that was a really big regret, a sort of yeah. overview regret of your time as health secretary. It made me think of Jason Leach's comments just the other day, actually, the Scottish government's national clinical director, and obviously during COVID, and he was expressing his regrets about specifically the pandemic. And he was talking about schools and closing down schools during the pandemic may have been a mistake. Um, he said, I made some missteps. Uh, we did what we did because of the knowledge we had at the time. I don't know if we'd do it the same way again because we have different knowledge now. I wonder if closing the schools is something we'd reconsider. Now, I feel like there is an attitude of cussing some slack because we were all learning as we went along from the highest to the lowest of us. We were all getting used to this thing. But do you, do you reflect in the same way as Jason Leach on that pandemic and things that could have been done differently? I think there, there is actually... A, uh, so this is a good opportunity. There, there is a problem with reflecting on the pandemic for people like me who are making decisions on it. And that is there is a real risk that people jump on things and say, aha, so you did get that wrong. I am firmly of the view that two things. One, we made the best decisions that we could with the information we had at the time, at the time that we made those decisions. Was every single one of those decisions the right decision? Possibly not. And we knew at the very outset that we, A, we, none of us had ever dealt with this before, and B, we were bound to make some mistakes. And 
So in the sense of what Jason has said, which is with what we know now, would we now, if it happened again, would we now make, would we now close schools? I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I think we, what we would not do is automatically do what we did before mm. again. But you have to be able to deal with the information you have at the time. And, and next time, it might not be a coronavirus that behaves very different from the flu virus. It might be another kind of virus. They are sneaky things and they're pretty clever yeah. at how they uh, perpetuate themselves. So it might, behave, it might be different from coronavirus in how it's transmitted and the harm that it potentially causes, whatever. But I think that the key thing to ask of decision makers is use the best evidence you can get your hands on. Understand it as well as you can. Mm. So pass widely for it. Understand it as well as you can. Make the decision that needs to be made. Explain it. And the thing about COVID and, and looking back at all that time, and there, there'll be loads of that happening, the UK inquiry started, the Scottish one will start taking evidence pretty soon, is there is a general view that in all of that, we were making decisions between doing a good thing versus doing a bad thing. It, it just wasn't like that. Mm. There, there was no harm-free decision to be made. There was no risk-free decision to be made. It was, it was a series of decisions multiple times in any one day between what is it we need to do that can cause the least harm, carry the least risk, and can we do anything to mitigate any harm that we are causing by making that decision? So it, it wasn't a nice can you do a good thing? Can you do a bad thing? Yeah. I wish. It, it just wasn't like that. Yeah. I think that's something that we are, as, as you know, people distant from the decision-making in that regard, we are, we are understanding that as we kind of progress through this thing as well. Just as we sort of conclude thoughts on health, perhaps, related things for, for the moment, Hamza Yusuf's record as health secretary was really interrogated during this leadership contest. To what extent should he bear responsibility for failings in and around the health service? I don't think Hamza has any more responsibility for that than any other previous health secretary, to be honest. The thing about the health service is it's a big, big ship and you do not fix it in a day. You do it in chunks. And I think, uh, I think in, while Hamza was health secretary, you could see progress being made. You know, do people think he should have focused on different areas or taken quicker steps? Well, perhaps they do. But um, I think as a health secretary, you need a good run at it to be able to point to improvements and differences that you've been able to make. And uh, so, so I'm not sure. And I, I completely get why opposition parties do this. You know, I, if I was in opposition... As an elected politician, I'd probably do exactly the same. I and think. indeed, Kate Forbes did it during the contest. Uh, well, indeed, uh, I get that. I get why that is done. I just think you need to be careful to not sacrifice rational thinking and fairness to the quick soundbite. Mm. Just need to be careful about that. Um, and that's hard to do when it's very easy for retired politicians to sit back in their chair in their wee office and you know <laughs> and give these words of great wisdom um, is harder when you're in the moment. It sounds like, from what you said at the start, Jean, it sounds like you know uh, ev every health secretary should, in some way, share the responsibility for whatever state we find the health service in today. That's kind of what is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think so because, and that includes the good as well as exactly That's, as yeah. well as things that that absolutely need sorted out, yeah. and things that that any one of us have kind of avoided looking at because it looked too difficult. Okay. Um, I think that's entirely fair because mm. it's not it's not a service that easily is shifted and changed yeah. in a quick timescale. But you can make progress. And I think we need to also be careful. We've all done it this morning. 
but health and social care need to be looked at together mm-hmm. because they are irretrievably interlinked in how people just live their lives. The two go together. I think that's particularly important. You know, Jean's comment about the soundbite, I think, is particularly important in health because the easy soundbite in health is to go back to what we said earlier, which is we'll put more money into it. That's the really easy mm. soundbite in the, in the health service. The difficult thing to do on health is what Jean tried to do before COVID, uh, to actually, you know, talk to people about how... To, you change what's happening. It's worth saying, Michael Matheson, who's now got the health job, Michael Matheson is a very, very competent minister. Absolutely. He has been very good in all his briefs. He was highly, highly thought of in the net zero and energy brief that he carried out um, over the last few years. Extremely highly thought of in that brief. But I tell you, he, it's a tough job, that health secretary job. It's a really tough job because you get almost nothing but bad news coming at you every single day. Yeah. Um, and it's not it's not easy to handle without reverting, as Jean just said, to that quick soundbite of saying we've identified some more money from from this from the back of this sofa to, to fix this thing here. And it's an easy thing to do, but it has to be avoided now. Grow up was your message during the SNP leadership <laughs> campaign, Gene. What's your message now? Yeah, they didn't pay a blind that notice. <laughs> <laughs> One word for me and they do what they like. Um, oh, so I think... Um, I, I, I think two things, I think. I think it is actually not a bad thing that there are um, differing views around what we do about the economy, what we do about public services, um, what we do about trying to uh, persuade more people to support uh, independence, right? I think, actually, I think that is healthy and potentially constructive. I think the key is, can we please do that in a way that is respectful? And by respectful, I mean, can we be open to the notion that my view may not be the only one that's right, that may not be right at all, that I could be persuaded and that I don't um, throw people into a box marked uh, unacceptable and terrible views just because they say something that I don't agree with? So, And I actually think there's a huge amount for my party, the SNP, to gain by having that open, constructive debate. Because, you know, people in Scotland aren't daft. They know that there are difficult things to discuss and sort out. And it actually, just maybe, they would quite like to see a party doing that. So so my, my view now is, you know, it's, it's not, for, for what it's worth, given that, you know, grow up didn't work, is could could we be grown-ups and actually have grown-up discussions about difficult issues to try and work out what we think might be the right way to uh, lead on these? Mm. And can we do that as openly and transparently as possible? Because, you know, my party, I want my party to do what I think we tried to do during COVID, and that is treat the population of Scotland as adults. So let's let's let you see us have that discussion and be open to the bits of that discussion you want to raise with us. And let everybody else who wants to point score and be ungracious and do all of those things, just get on with it. We're not actually going to pay too much attention to you. Very much linked to that, you know, where we find ourselves just now is, uh, let's face it, we've had three polls out recently, uh, Savanta, Panel Base and the Redfield one, I think, all showing a significant advance of the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, all of them uh, with the next, you know, electoral contest, we believe, will be the general election across the UK with Labour forecast to pick up um, a dozen or so seats at least. Now... I wonder if you got your reflections. You went on a journey, um, did you not, from that Labour to to SNP, and you talked earlier on about your kind of family heritage and alignment with the Labour Party. I just wonder, do you get a sense of 
that same kind of momentum shift against the SNP and back to Labour. And the reason I, I think this is so mm. interesting is all the polls I mentioned is independent support has stayed strong. You know, 46, 47, 48, 49, around about there. But yet the SNP vote's going down. Now, for those of us that remember, the, the independence vote some years ago in the 90s and the 2000s actually was higher than that of the SNP support. So do you think there's a shift back towards the Labour Party from the SNP? What's your observations on that? It's a really, it's a really interesting question, uh, Jeff. And I think um, partly, partly the current polling, I think, might be answered by the fact that people's eye, if you like, uh, uh, is on a general election. And I, I think, uh, you know, the Scottish voter can make a, and always has been able to make a really good distinction between what they think should happen at a general election, what they think should happen at a Hollywood election. So I think we need to be mindful of that. And I think for the general election, people are um, very keen for it not to be another Conservative government at Westminster. So that's partly it. But I think to, to get more to the heart of what I think is your question, um, I think there is a risk, there is always a risk for any party that is in government and is doing well in terms of how the public sees it over a, a significant period of time that you become complacent and you start focusing on things, you lose touch with where the public is. You, there's a disconnect. And, and the, the, if you like, the polling that worried me a wee bit around the leadership election was the, the apparent disconnect between where SNP members were thinking in terms of who should be the next leader and what the public thought about that. Uh, I think you need to really pay attention to that. There is, if, if you're going to lead, you should lead, but be really careful you're not so far ahead or of where the public are or so out of touch with where they are that that you have lost them. So those are the worry, the wee worries I would have around this. You know, we, we, we are good at, knowing what the public mood is, understanding what people are worried about and concerned about and responding to that. Can we please make sure that that is actually what we're doing? And can we uh, think through how to refresh and re-energise what we're doing so that we avoid complacency and a kind of presumption that the opposition parties are all a bit rubbish and we'll therefore be fine? If I can just follow up on that very quickly, because you've mentioned three kind of uh, words there or phrases, out of touch, complacency, presumption. Those three things are how I would characterise our, the SNP's, I should say, in 2007 views on the Labour Party yeah. in the run up yeah. to 2007. Mm. And, and that's why I was quite keen to draw, draw, draw out some parallels if you see them that way. And I think that is the massive risk for the SNP, this... Um, personal fiefdom that you've got to really fight for this guys it's not a presumption um, and we, uh, the S&P must be very careful not to be viewed as a party that assumes it's right to uh, victory and my second observation is this and it's more of a potential positive for Hamza and amidst all of the difficulties that he and his party and the government face right now. I recall in 2011, before the, uh, the, the breakup for the election period, the Labour Party were winning in the polls quite handsomely mm -hmm. at that point that Parliament broke up for Perda. And what happened was the SNP recorded a majority. And they did that for a number of reasons, but not least because those polls actually served to... Uh, create a bunker mentality within the SNP, right? We've got to fight together. We've got to unify. We didn't always agree, but we fought on the basis that if we didn't stick together, we would definitely lose. And I think if you're to look at any positives in the current polling, bearing in mind the SNP are still ahead right now, um, then they must try and replicate that bunker mentality. It's the Alec Ferguson, Aberdeen and Man United. They're all against this. Utilise that to its fullest extent uh, if you are to look for a positive route through. Sorry, Andy, you were going to, to say. Well, it's, it's connected with the same thing. I mean... I think the difficulty, but I mean, I'm just struck by what Jean said about you know the need to have a grown-up conversation in public, and I, I mean, obviously I don't disagree with that. 
I think the problem, though, is that this is not just a conversation inside the SNP anymore. Because what Hamza's policy and the, and the leadership contest has meant is that this conversation now intrinsically involves the Green Party. It's not just an SNP mm. conversation now. I mean, what I, one thing I thought was really fascinating at the weekend, so Fergus Ewing wrote an article about the Greens um, and about how we shouldn't be in the... Uh, about how the SNP and, and the Greens should not be in the, in the agreement anymore, in the Butte House agreement anymore, and there was a poll that a third of the SNP members didn't want the Greens as part of it. That was rebutted not by the Scottish government, not by the SNP, but by a green backbencher called Ross Greer. He was the rebuttal of that, accusing Fergus Ewing of being further right wing than Boris Johnson and all that sort of thing. I think the dynamic here is incredibly interesting because you've got a situation where it's not just a kind of Hamza, Kate, urban, rural, left, right. It's not all that kind of slightly lazy stuff. It's also about how involved the Green Party is with the SNP, because when you see that sort of rebuttal from Ross Green at the weekend, it looks like the ERG and the Tory party. It's like the Greens have almost become a faction of one side of the SNP. And I think that has... I don't know what the lasting consequences are. That's up to the electorate to decide what the lasting consequences of that are. But I think there are lasting consequences of this. I find it really interesting and it also ties back to what you said earlier, Gina, about SMEs in your part of the world. How do you turn round to the business community and say we're ready to listen when you are in government with people who openly object to economic growth and who openly want to replace capitalism? This puts a totally different slant, I think, on that internal conversation that the SNP needs to have. Gene? Yeah, so, so I... I uh, I don't disagree with that, Andy. Um, but I don't think it's quite as absolute as you're suggesting. But I do think that the current agreement, the Butte House agreement between the SNP and the Green Party, probably needs to talk through a bit more about exactly what are the um, what are the boundaries of that agreement. What what are they? Because we've got two distinct parties who have, um, in the agreement, as I understand it, um, agreed to retain their distinctiveness. So let's not blur those lines then. Let's be a bit clearer about where the cooperation is and where it isn't. And where it isn't, that doesn't necessarily undermine where it is, if you follow me. Sorry, it was a, I'm losing myself in that, but you understand what I mean. Yeah. Uh, because I think otherwise, then we we risk it being unclear to the the wider public. And I I can you know, I I I do not want to end capitalism, um, and I do think economic growth is critical. Equally, there are aspects of what the Green Party would argue and would want that I would agree with, but I'd also think is challenging to the SNP to think a bit more then about, well, what do you do about the climate and, and energy and all of that? So I, I think, I guess I think we, we need to be clearer about what is the nature of that agreement and and in what way should the parties then continue to be distinctive? Because it's not a coalition like there was when I was a special advisor between Labour and the Lib Dems. It's not the same. Um, it's something different. But I don't think it's widely understood what the something different is. Mm. Mm. Andy, what do you make of that? Is that is that right? That it's where where are the points of difference here? Yeah, I think I, I I agree with that because I don't think the points of difference are obvious. But what I suspect that those who support it would say is they would say, well, we already have these established. They're all in the Butte House Agreement. We know what's in and what's out because they're there. But I think in practice, mm. even though some things are explicitly out it hasn't actually stopped the Greens influencing those policy areas, like, for example, oil and gas. I think the green rhetoric on oil and gas has bled into Scottish government rhetoric on oil and gas. So I'm not sure that the excluded areas have in practice felt like they are excluded. And that's where it comes back to what you said, Jean. I, I, I mean, I, I do think for the future 
security of the SNP, I think it needs to be made clearer that they are, you know, they are in charge of this. They are the senior partner in this agreement. They have the bulk of uh, the power. They have the bulk of the ministers and the Greens are the junior because it, it feels like in many cases, it feels the other way around. Yeah, and we've talked previously, have we not, about the need for, for Hamza to show some teeth in his interactions with the, the, the Green Party. And and I think, you know, being able to illustrate clear lines of divergence is going to be really important politically for this to be a success. And my further observation on, on the Fergus Ewing um, uh, op-ed, as, as you alluded to, uh, Andy, I think what I was quite uneasy about is just the tone of the response from the Green Party. Now, don't get me wrong, Fergus is strong and he's punchy and he's thick-skinned and all the rest of it, but he's still a Ewing. And, I, and I, he's part of the Ewing dynasty, as we used to call it when I was growing up in the SNP, and he's hugely respected by large parts of the membership. And I think that that needs to be carefully considered, just from a purely political communications point of view. Are you really going to be able to unify the broad tent more with commentary like that? Or are you going to try and create more divergence with that? I would suggest it's the latter. So these things have to be looked at going forward and maybe some ground rules put down about exactly the nature of this relationship if it's to be successful, as I say. And I think to add to that, because I, 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 uh, I think I agree a lot there with what you said, Jeff. I also think there is a question of respect. No. You know, if regardless of whether Fergus is a Ewing or not, he is a politician of significant standing and long experience. You know, there's there's a bit about, could we give some respect? You might not agree. I mean, I, I have a real soft spot for Fergus. He was an, a really supportive colleague to me all through those five years. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I agreed with Fergus. Um, but we worked really well together and we had respect for each other. And I just think, and that's because I knew he had a history in the party I was now a member of that I could never replicate but could learn from. And I think a bit of respect for people who have devoted their lives to something, regardless of what that something is, is actually um, the, the, the proper way to handle these things. Yeah, well said. And I, and I think there's a case for that respect uh, across all the parties just now. Um, it, we really are sometimes playing lowest common denominator politics. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a... I hope they're listening, Jean, <laughs> to your comments there. Put it that way. Well, well maybe not, actually, because look what happened the last time. <laughs> <laughs> We're not blaming you for that, Jean. It was a valiant, it was a valiant attempt, I think, is what we can describe it as. <laughs> with some of these thoughts in mind then about respect and about you know how how the parties how the politicians even within parties are dealing with each other one thing that we often reflect on Jean in Scottish political discussion is the discipline of the SNP when Sturgeon was in charge and before Herman Salmon was in charge but let's focus on Nicola Sturgeon because I'm not sure I've ever asked somebody what that means who has who has worked with her in cabinet what does Nicola Sturgeon's discipline of a party actually feel like when you're in it Feels fine. <laughs> but what does it I mean, day to day? Because it's, it's this sort of big political concept that people just sort of throw about. And I'm just intrigued as to how that works in, or worked in practice. Well, I think the thing you've got to remember about um, Nicola is that she has a, a significant intellect, a huge work ethic, and a really broad grasp across a range of issues. And Consequently, it's not that hard to respect her authority and her, her view. But what I always found was that she was very willing to have the discussion if you wanted to do something that, that she might not initially agree with or she might not initially have seen the, the situation from the angle you were coming uh, from as long as you'd done the work. So you hadn't just sort of woken up one morning and thought of something clever. You'd actually done the work and you had an argument and a case to put. Then, then you could have a really good constructive discussion and, and reach a view. Um, and I, uh, I always appreciated the fact 
that um, she she kind of left you to get on with your job because I, I, I don't know uh, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but my view was, my feeling always was that her view was, I have appointed you because I think you could do the job. Could you please now just get on and do it? Yeah. Make sure that I know what you're doing. Make sure that you use political nose. So if you think something's going to be a bit difficult, a bit tricky, that you come and talk to me about it, you tell me about it. But otherwise, get on and do your job because mm. that's what you're there to do. Mm. And yeah. I think that is brilliant to have from a boss. Yeah. She was yeah. my boss. I mean, it's interesting, you know, um, in that way, you know, I work very closely with, with, with both Alec and Nicola, and I'm always asked, you know, about the iron discipline that, that, that was, you know, the perception. But the truth is, and, and I don't disagree with anything that you've said there, because uh, that was similar to, to, to Alex Salmon as well in terms of, I'm appointing you, now get on with it. Just come on with you if you've got any issues or you've got suggestions and, and come armed with them at Cabinet. But is it not the case also that success breeds success? And that period between that started off in 2007, you know, unleashed unparalleled success for the SNP. Mm -hmm. And I do think now that we are in, on, on the precipice potentially of a period of a bit that success isn't as guaranteed. And are people being able to find their voices uh, in terms of discontent? And secondly, I do wish, I mean, I, I, I've said before my huge respect for Nicholas. She was a massive um, uh, influence on me and, and going through my period in government and, and always had the door open to offer advice. I suppose one regret she might have is just the, um, the nature and the context in which she departed the SNP because whoever was going to be victor victorious in that election uh, period was faced with significant public policy challenges. The uh, independent strategy wasn't clear I think that's probably being kind. And I do wonder if there was an element of clearing the decks that could have been done to, 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 to present a, a, an easier or more stable platform to advance in terms of her successor. Yeah, I, and and there's always, isn't there, there's always a desire to tidy everything up before you go. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, we've probably all, well, maybe you haven't done it, but I certainly used to always get through my entry at a rapid rate before I was going to be uh, off for a week or whatever. Yeah. Um, all those things that I'd avoided doing um, for ages, I could suddenly manage to do them. So there's a temptation to do that. But I think the wise head knows that politics isn't like that. Mm. You know, you can clear the decks now and go and make a cup of tea. And when you come back, you know, <laughs> lively. All sorts of other things have happened. So um, I, I think... Uh, I think that would be a false thing, actually, for a leader to do, is to say, well, uh, I'm going to leave, but I'll, I'll wait until I've sorted all these things, mm. because that's oh, an impossibility. Honestly, Callum, yeah, talk about an embarrassment of riches. They want to try doing comms for the Tory party. I could barely even get them to say their name properly on TV, let alone give the party line. <laughs> no, and I have to say as well, Gene, that's a, that's a very that's a very fair response. And um, it's just that it's always put, and you see in the commentary in the media, that, that particular point's always put, and I think you've succinctly answered that. Mm. Very interesting. It's really interesting. Gene, does it feel like, I suppose, just as a sort of concluding thought or two, does it feel like a positive and optimistic new chapter for the SNP that you that you now are you know looking at into from the outside to an extent uh, what does it feel does it feel fresh does it feel difficult I don't know what words would you use to describe this next period it it feels it feels like it could be positive and fresh and um energizing and it's up to those of us in the SNP whether we ensure that that's what happens or whether we just have a go at each other and talk to talk to ourselves. Mm. Uh, I'm much more interested. It goes back to something that you guys were talking about at the very start about First Minister's Questions. Key thing for me at First Minister's Questions is who are you actually talking to? You are not talking to the people in that chamber. You are talking to the people watching outside, to the people who will read, watch the clips, read the coverage, that's who you're talking to. And that's where I think my party is right now. 
let's be clear about who we're talking to and who is watching us having that conversation. Because, you know, my, my dad told me that, always told me that the thing about being elected was that the people who really had the power were the people who had lent you their power mm. to elect you. Yes. And you should never forget that. You have it for a time-limited period and you have it on trust, but they're the ones that call the shots. So they're the ones that you need to listen to, pay attention to and talk to. What a way to finish off a podcast. There you go. <laughs> you can have that one, politics students. Go and write an essay on that. <laughs> uh, Jean, thank you so much. It's been really Not great to spend so much time thank with you. you. Thank you for your willingness. It's great to have you on. That is Jean Freeman, uh, formerly of the Scottish Government, of course, and potentially, potentially we'll be back in there at some point. Uh, not necessarily in government, but I mean advising on health and things. Sounds like you're up for that, which would be interesting as well. Um, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Andy. Uh, lovely to have you there as always. Uh, lots of drama then in Scottish politics this morning. We'll reflect on that in the weeks ahead, I'm certain. If you would like to reflect on what you've just heard, please do email us. Hello at hollyroodsources.com is the email address to get in touch. Uh, make sure you follow and subscribe. We've got lots more to come on Hollywood Sources over the next few weeks. We'll be back next Wednesday. Uh, that's when we're regularly dropping into your podcast feed i mean we say that if something dramatic happens then we'll pop up before that too but next wednesday make sure you follow and subscribe and we will be with you then thanks very much and goodbye